0: turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we continue to roll through what Solomon has said in this work on living a meaningful life, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. We now turn tonight to Ecclesiastes 2 and begin to see some of the personal experiences of Solomon's life. And so tonight, what we're going to look at is the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 2, which deals with this idea of the futility of pleasure. So we looked at the, the futility of, of, uh, uh, and, and the, the, of this temporal life, and we looked at the futility of man's wisdom, and now the things that we enjoy in this life. And once again, Solomon uses this to goad us towards his theme and his purpose which is the, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments and so what we need to see is when we live life outside of that what does it look like what is the experience and so let's look at what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 through 11 as we open our bible study here tonight it says I said in my heart Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and planted them and all ki- planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the water, from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Many of you know my third child, my second daughter, Joanna. And one of Joanna's favorite things to do when we sit on the couch is she holds up her foot and she looks at me and she says, do my piggies. And so I embark upon the tale of five little piggies. You know that story? I'm going to rehearse it for you, okay? This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had none. And then we get to the last one, right? And this little piggy went, wee, wee all the way home right and when we commence the wee 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 part fierce tickling ensues resulting in giggles and squeals of delight and inevitably when we finish that foot you know what happens the other foot shoots up and she says do these piggies now right And so once again, we enjoy the story of the five little piggies, and we anticipate the tickles that the littlest piggy will bring us, and predictably so, when that ends, you know what the cries are? Do it again, right? If you've raised children or you've spent time around them, you've probably experienced this again, again approach to life. They want you to do the same thing over and over and over again. And usually, you have to end it by saying what? Well, I'm tired, right? Or I'm not going to do that again. Children love to experience their favorite things again and again and again and again. They are never satisfied with just one time, it seems. As I thought about that, this is the question that came to my head. Do we ever really grow out of this? Do we ever get over the just one more time mentality in our lives? Or do we, like young children, declare in our hearts and lives, again, we get all the things we want, but we want more. We beat all the levels in the video game and we max out our battle passes and we want more. We decorate our homes with the latest pieces, but we look at the walls and we want more. We shoot the biggest deer we saw, but we're convinced there's a bigger one waiting for us if we just go out one more morning or we stay just a few more minutes. The things we take pleasure in in this life have this way of tantalizing us, do they not? They never seem to be enough, and they always make us walk seem to want more when perhaps we should realize we aren't going to find the answers we seek or the happiness we desire we instead give in once again to the endless cycle of futility and pleasure solomon in his quest to find what it takes to live a meaningful life and in his endeavors to record these findings for us now turns to pleasure Here, he shares with us everything he tried in order to find meaning and the disappointing results he was forced to admit. What you see here tonight is happiness and meaning sought in and derived from pleasure alone will never satisfy. If you're trying to find happiness in your life, if you're trying to find um, meaning to the life that you live under the sun right in this world, and you're trying to derive that meaning or derive some happiness from, from pleasurable experiences. If you're trying to find something that will last in this temporal life. You're never going to find something that's going to satisfy. It's going to be like my daughter sitting on the couch sticking those feet up. Again, 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 again. Right? And inevitably... The things that you experience are going to leave you wanting more, or the things that you watch someone else experience make you want that, and it's just a cycle that continues over and over and over again. So let's look tonight at these 11 verses and see what has Solomon embarked on, and and what does he share with us that he learned from these activities? So in verses 1 and 2 of, of this chapter, you see here really the proposed test that Solomon lays before. Now, and it's almost very scientific the way he lays it out because really in the first part of verse one there's there's this premise here he says I set in my heart come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself. So Solomon has observed in chapter 1 the futility of the temporal in comparison to the world around us. The world spins on even as man leaves it. The things that were going on before you were here are going to go on after you leave here, right? And and it's it's more of the same as the circle of life continues. The things that man has accomplished and he's experienced in the past, he's going to do it again because people forget things. So then Solomon turned to his wisdom to try to contemplate how to find meaning in these things. But no matter how much wisdom you have, he came to the conclusion you can't make sense of life or squeeze meaning out of this fallen world. So Solomon now turns to pleasure. And here's the question. What if then someone gives themselves to living it up, seeking to grab every last ounce of pleasure you can in this world? Because we can admit this life may be full of temporal futility, and our minds may falter in trying to make sense of that temporal futility. So what if we just bury all of that hevel, that vanity, that temporalness in pleasure and just try to forget it all? Maybe then we'll find some meaning. After all, isn't that life? what life is about? Enjoying yourself? Solomon is proposing here a test. He's... He's making a premise here. Can the frivolities of this life quench the burning of his soul? Will pleasure provide him with justification for his existence? And I want you to notice, what is the premise and what is, the, what is Solomon trying to find here? Okay, That's going to be important when we come back to the end. So what is he trying to find? One, can the frivolities of this life quench the burning of his soul and will pleasure provide him with justification for his existence. Life is full of questions and empty action. So will giving yourself to your own pursuit of happiness help you find something of value? And so that's what Solomon is going to set out to do. He's going to seek to apply his wisdom that God had given him to his life experiences. He will give himself the gift of personal pleasure of individual enjoyment and along the way he's going to gauge the results but here's the thing before he even tells us how the test goes he tells us how it's going to turn out so you know what do they say spoiler alert you're about to find out all the answers okay in verses in second part of verse one into verse two he tells you the outcome he says but behold this also was vanity I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So Solomon says, listen, I've already been down the road. That's what I'm writing about here. I've, I've already completed the investigation. And, and what's more, he's a man full of wisdom. And so therefore, remember, he is the preacher or the teacher. So therefore, he tells the classroom, right? As, as Koheleth, he tells the classroom, this is what you're going to find. He's done the research He's run the experiment, and the findings aren't looking so great. In fact, the results are coming back, and they're reading hevel. They're reading vanity. So Solomon gave himself to enjoying the things of his life, filling his life with pleasure and mirth. And in the end, he says it's still meaningless. It's still there, but you can't. It seems like it's there, and you can't grab it. And he says in verse 2 that even laughter in the face of such an experience is insanity. Sometimes that's how we try to fill our lives, right? We can't make sense of it all, so we just try to laugh the feelings away. But the feeling of laughter can't take away the vanity. Proverbs 14, another book that Solomon wrote much of, Proverbs 14, 13 says, Even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Experiences and pleasurable endeavors may meet some temporary craving of your flesh. They may make you forget the emptiness that you feel for a time. But at the end of it all, Solomon says, the hollowness returns. So Solomon rightly asks at the end of verse 2, what use is pleasure? We live in a world that's obsessed with pleasure. We're told to do what makes us happy and to follow our dreams. We spend large sums of money on trips and experiences and entertainments and possessions. I mean, that's the expected norm. But at the end of it all, it doesn't do anything for us. These things wear out and they end. They leave us with an ache in our hearts. And we plunge into this syndrome that can be classified by two words. What's next? We get done with something say, well, what's next? What's next? Because there has to be something. What vacation or experience or entertainment or accomplishment or anything else, what is it I can check off my list? That last one didn't satisfy me and I have an ever-increasing want for more. So this is the proposed test and the outcome that Solomon observed. Now, that's kind of the short and sweet version, right? So then the question is, then why does he go on for nine more verses to tell us more? Because how many of us would just say, well, that's what he found, right? But I bet he didn't try, and I bet he didn't try, and I bet he didn't try. He says, well, here's the long, here's the long story. Here's what I did. So class, he says, listen up. Here's what I tried. And so now in verses 3 through 8, we see the practice of these things. In verse 3, Solomon tells us he gave himself to indulgence. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men, man to do, uh, to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon, the wisest man in the world and the wealthiest and most powerful man in Israel at this time, had the means to experiment with every pleasure, and so here he records these endeavors. It would be hard to find a stone that he hadn't turned over in his life. He tells us first that he gave himself to indulgence. Specifically, he says he sought to cheer himself up with intoxicating beverages and, and the lifestyle that follows those things. It's interesting to note that he makes a point of saying you know, his heart was so guided with wisdom. It, you kind of get the idea here that, that Solomon is saying, listen, I was, I was trying to not drink too much. right? I was trying to keep my wit about me while I did these things and be guided by my, my wisdom so I can think rationally. He wanted to find the point in his life at which one could legitimately experience all this world had, off, had to offer to give him meaning. And he was actively applying his God-given wisdom to those things. So he tried first dulling his senses and his gnawings with intoxicants. And indeed, I would point you to this. Our 21st century problems are nothing new under the sun. This is an answer that many turn to in our day. Why? Because alcohol offers an escape, right? That's how it's pitched. It dulls the mind. It promises to take the edge off your life and helps you embrace the good life. The problem is it doesn't deliver on any of those promises. No, it makes things worse. It brings about heartache and brokenness. It brings addiction and hurt. And it doesn't give you meaning. It leaves you wanting more emptier than you were before. So Solomon says, not only he talks about, you know, having his wisdom guiding him, but then he says an interesting statement, and how to lay hold on folly. That's an interesting statement because you read the book of Proverbs and you run across four people, the simple, the scorner, the wise and the fool. And wisdom and foolishness are presented as two opposite ends of the spectrum. So here's Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, and saying, well, I'm, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to try to keep my wisdom. Now he says, well, I also wanted to try to lay hold on folly. This wisest man in the world sought the things he knew were of no redeeming value, and he did this to see what it would offer him and other people. Listen, we have to admit That a life consumed with following God isn't an easy life. Why? Well, it's a life that brings about unanswered questions and hard times. But I would say that's just like any other life that's lived under the sun. It's easy to look around at the world and think, wow, these people don't have any problems. God's people are loaded with problems. You ever thought that before? If you have, by the way, you should read Psalm 73. The truth is, though, those people have problems just like you and me. That's why they jump from one pursuit to the next, one thing to the next, and the next, and the next. There always has to be something else to leave behind the emptiness that keeps returning. So Solomon will tell us, hey, don't be fooled. I've tried it. And so the experiment continues. In verses 4 through 6, Solomon says, not only did he give himself to indulgence, he gave himself to works. Put your finger right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and turn back towards the front of your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 7. In just a minute, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 7. It's a longer passage, so I'm not going to put it up on the screen here tonight. Solomon filled his life with works. He says in verses 4 through 6, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He built all of these wonderful things. He planted amazing things. He made gardens and parks full of trees and pools. And now these are common things that kings in his time would do and if you have your if you turned there to 1 Kings chapter 7, let's look at verses 1 through 12 and read of Solomon's endeavors in this area. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth was 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne, where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell in the other court, back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule, vestibule of the house." I mean, just reading that, even if you don't get all of the words there, you kind of get the impression this was an impressive thing, right? He really put time and effort and slave labor into this endeavor, right? He, he, he made sure he had a wonderful place to live and, and to, to judge and to rule the people. And he built houses. He says he built a house there for one of his wives. And, of course, we didn't even read about the temple that Solomon had built. What a magnificent accomplishment that was that shone with gold, bringing glory to God. All of these things are an impressive feat. Gardens and plants were not an uncommon work showing great beauty. Have you ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? This is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So Solomon himself built some type of garden for himself. So it's not unusual for Solomon to undertake such works for his own achievements and pleasure. What does it offer him? Well, it offers him a sense of accomplishment. It displayed the beauty and the opulence of the kingdom. And really, in a way, as you read these things that Solomon made, especially when it talks about the forests and the parks and the pools, Solomon is seeking to exercise control over his own little corner of creation. In a way... He created, as he created this forest and watered by his own pools and he grew fruit and sought to sustain plant life, he's creating here a a seeming oasis. It was work, right? But, But it offered in that work the promise of meaning. See, if you go all the way back to the beginning of everything and you go to Genesis chapter two, you would learn that God created man to work. In Genesis 2 God placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden specifically Adam was to work in the garden So no matter what you say work having to go to you know do work is not part of the curse it's part of the creation of man Now the fact that your work is hard is part of the curse of sin It is part of our God-given nature and calling to engage in work You understand God did not create us to be couch potatoes, right? You, yet the question is this. Can work alone offer meaning? Can the daily grind bring about lasting joy? And again, I would, I would ask you to look at the world you live in. Because the, you'll find the answer there. Because what do workaholics do? They go back for more more. I need the next promotion. I need more overtime. I need a few more pennies in my 401k. There's always more that needs to be had. Solomon had more than his share of wealth and so he also used that in an effort to find meaning. He, he indulged himself. He, he worked hard seeking meaning and then lastly he gave himself to the wealth that he enjoyed. In verses 7 and 8, I bought mail and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. See, what you have here in verses 7 and 8 is no matter what the standard is that you use to measure wealth, Solomon had it. So, the, so if you want to look, first of all, at, at the workers he owned to measure his net worth, well, he had those. He had many slaves in his home. He, his slaves included both those he acquired from other places, as well as those who were born into their service. As a king, Solomon enjoyed others working for him. Perhaps these are enemies, pressed into service. We know that he also brought many of his own people in to serve him. And by the way, this is a side note. This is exactly what Samuel warned the nation of Israel about when they wanted a king. He said, this is what's going to happen. He's going to enslave you and make you work. Slaves were viewed then by some and have been viewed even up to today by some as some type of commodity. And Solomon engaged in this endeavor, amassing quite a force to keep his kingdom running. And then you move from, from the people, the workforce he owned, to the livestock. He owned an impressive amount of livestock. His flocks and his herds as the king were naturally greater than anyone had ever seen. It's not as unexpected as the king, but also, if you just understand how many people Solomon had to feed on a regular basis, then of course he's going to have all of these animals, such massive amounts of livestock show incredible wealth. They give you a sense of superiority that whatever was needed, Solomon had it or he could go get it. The scriptures speak of Solomon um, brokering deals between other nations for some of these animals, that he was kind of the middleman. So when it came to that, he had it. You say, okay, I mean, you know, slaves, not really a great thing, right? Animals, not really my thing. I mean, what about just cash? Cold, hard cash. Well, what did it say? He has that too, right? He had silver and he had gold. In fact, we're told in the book, in the book of Kings that silver was looked at as common and very little value in Solomon's kingdom because of all the gold. His treasuries overflowed. And not only did he enjoy the the silver and the gold, he says, the treasure of kings and provinces. Other nations sent treasure to him. They had to pay their dues to the subjugator of the nations. Solomon didn't just gain wealth from his own people and his own land. He gained it from those outside of Israel as well. So no matter which way you slice it, he was incredibly blessed in any financial measurement system. And so then lastly, in this area of wealth, Solomon enjoyed pleasurable interactions that you could have with other people. He enjoyed here, he says, singers, both male and female. You say, what is this? Well, that's, uh, that's, that's the uh, nine-something you know, BC iPod is what that is, right? They didn't have a cassette player or, you know, anything like that. So what did he do? He got the singers. So anytime he wanted to listen, he could have these people come in. You have rulers coming from another place and you want to impress them. You bring out the singers, right? And they sing and they entertain. When Solomon wanted a soundtrack, he got it. He enjoyed the arts and acquired those who can make it happen. The Bible tells us he also had many concubines. Quite frankly, what, is, what are we talking about? Just understand Solomon denied himself no pleasure in his life. From the financial to the sensual, Solomon took steps to enjoy it all. And those whom men would objectively declare met the standard of beauty Solomon added to his harem. So really, as you look at this full picture, the indulgence the works, the wealth. No one can say that Solomon didn't know how to have a good time, right? I mean, by any standard of anybody out there, Solomon knew how to have a good time. He knew how to try it all. And now as Solomon sits back and observes what he's experienced and gained, he has to ponder the outcome of it all. In verses 9 and 10, he shows us that he has indeed enjoyed unsurpassed pleasure. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So Solomon formally presents here the finding of his experiment. First he reinforces the encompassing nature of his experiment. He had surpassed anyone in all these things. As the king of Israel, full of wisdom and wealth, he could take everything to the extreme. You can go out tomorrow or tonight, and you can pursue pleasure at all costs. And at some point, your pursuit of pleasure is going to run into some limitations. Namely, you know, probably whatever the max on your credit card is, right? There's only so much you can afford. There's only so much you can acquire. But you listen to what Solomon says here, and you understand Solomon didn't have the same limitations as everybody else. Now, would he have some limitations? Well, surely at some point you get to the end of all that. But you understand with what we read about Solomon, you know, he had a lot to burn through before he got to, to the point which he's exhausted everything. He had unparalleled access and ability. And so, he leveraged all of that, seeking to find pleasure, seeking to find meaning. And all the while, he talks about his wisdom did not leave him. He's using his unmatched wisdom to, ga- to gauge it all. You see, here's the thing. He couldn't escape the need to consider what he had done. He couldn't leave behind the evaluation of it all. He was accountable to take stock of the outcome. Solomon truly went, we could say, all in. Whatever seemed good and right to his flesh, he engaged in. And in the work, notice this, he did find pleasure. In the moment, he found something that made him happy. I want you to notice here, Solomon does not say, I didn't find any pleasure. I didn't find anything I li- I, didn't, you know, I, didn't, I didn't find anything I liked. It was just awful, it was a horrible experience. Right? He doesn't say that, right? Because quite frankly, if that's the way it worked, no one would do these things, right? The work he accomplished, the experiences he embarked in, the people he enjoyed all brought him some sort of pleasure. And so now I want to call your mind back to what I told you I would call it back to at the beginning of the message. That wasn't the point of the experiment. The point wasn't, can you find pleasure? The point wasn't, can you enjoy yourself, right? Because if, if that was the point, if, if the premise was these things can bring you pleasure, then he would have succeeded. I mean, close the book, rev up the party, live a good life. In the moment, he found pleasure. But Solomon isn't concerned about the moment, was he? He's concerned with lasting meaning. Can these things bring an end to the vanity? Can these experiences unseat Hevel? That's the goal. That's the premise And that's the purpose. So Solomon now has to return to reality and share with us what he's found. In verse 11, we see the unfulfilled life. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon tells us that he considered everything he had done and all the toil he had expended. That, that, that's a really neat word, considered. It talks about coming face to face with something. Kind of the idea is he had to face the facts, right? When it all came down to it, I had to sit down and look at the sheet that says, okay, this is what I experienced and this is what, I, what came of it. He had to consider the real value of everything he had done. He had put in a lot of effort and a lot of work, and he had enjoyed what he had because of the work he put in, right? Because nothing worth anything in life is free, right? But now, Solomon sits back and makes a final evaluation. He looks at everything he poured in, and he sets that, everything he poured in Against the return on his investment. So here's everything I did. Everything I, all the work I put in, all the pleasure I had, everything. And here's my return on investment. How does that balance out on the scale? He wishes to know what the real value is he's accomplished. What is his net gain? What is the satisfaction that it leaves him with? And once again, he has to admit that he's left with Hevel. With a fruitless Pursuit. It's actually quite fascinating. Notice here in verse 11, we'll back up and and, and just get a, a big picture. You get the idea here. I mean, just piled up work after work after work, right? Pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. Pursuit after pursuit. And so then when you get to verse 11, Solomon then piles up a whole bunch of words to tell you what he experienced. We've seen these pictures before. It was vanity, right? And then he says it was a striving after wind, this fruitless endeavor. And then he says there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, he's telling you, listen, I did all this, and this is what it was worth. Diddly squat, right? That's a real technical Hebrew term, okay? Solomon's works. You know, think about his works in the gardens. Right, I told you he was trying to exercise some type of control over his corner of creation. It's almost like he was attempting there even to create another Eden. But unlike God's word and God's work, Solomon could not look at that and say, Behold, it is good. Right? That's what God said when he created. Solomon says there's nothing to be gained under the sun by what he's done. There is no lasting happiness, no lasting meaning, no lasting joy. As one pastor put it, the journey was a pleasure, but the destination brought pain. Oh, he had a great time while he was doing it. He enjoyed listening to the singers. He enjoyed building the things. He enjoyed taking in the wealth. He enjoyed living in the nice houses and putting those things up. But where did it get him? It got him to vanity. It got him to meaninglessness. The old saying, it was fun while it lasted. Seems very appropriate here, doesn't it? In the moment, He had a good time. But is the moment of good time really what's most important? I would argue it's not. I would argue that most of us in this room, not all of us, would say, no, it's great to have a good time, but I want some meaning in my life when it's over. I don't want to feel empty inside. I don't want to feel like I've wasted my life. Solomon argues that there should be something more. There should be something worthwhile. And and he hasn't found that as he pursues pleasure. Once again, his efforts are futile. And happiness and meaning sought in and derived from pleasure alone will, will never satisfy. Life apart from God is an endless chase. It causes us to jump from one experience to the next, chasing the feeling of happiness and contentment we can't ever seem to hold on to. You know, you and I, we buy more things, not because we need something else, but because we want something else, right? We chase fleeting feelings, hoping that one day those feelings that make us so happy will never go away. But under the sun, there's no meaning to be found in those things. We have to come back to our relationship with God. So the question is, are followers of God allowed to have any fun? Right? I mean, many a joke and a hurtful statement has been targeted to the followers of God over the years, poking fun at a Christian's inability to have a good time. The answer is, of course, followers of God are allowed to enjoy pleasure. In fact, I would argue that followers of God have the greatest pleasures in life. This is because true disciples walking with God know and understand that pleasure isn't the pursuit, pleasure isn't the goal, pleasure isn't the driving force of why I do what I do. Following and obeying God is the ultimate goal and end of life. If we put that in its proper place, we can enjoy the things of this life that fall within with obedience to God. Because let's be clear, there are things that are objectively sinful and objectively wrong that cannot be enjoyed in the life of a disciple, okay? There are certain things the scriptures say, this is wrong, right? And if you're a follower of God, you can't do those things and find any joy in them because you're out of step with God, I was talking at our man up breakfast a couple weeks ago. You guys probably remember I said, you know, that any, any God, any work that honors God can bring us satisfaction and bring glory to God. I said, so therefore, it has to honor God. You can't go out and rob banks for God, right? Even if you tithe on it, okay? <laughs> Solomon experimented with, and he enjoyed some things in this passage even that are wrong, Okay? But there are other things Solomon pursued that can fit within a disciple's life in their proper place and balance. God created this world for our enjoyment, but it has to be enjoyed, it must be enjoyed, in its proper place. Pleasure alone will never satisfy, but a prioritized relationship with God will lead to pleasures forevermore. Fear God and keep his commandments. And if you set that as the priority of your life, you can go out and engage in the things that aren't objectionally wrong and sinful, knowing, hey, I'm going to enjoy this in the Lord because at the end of the day, this is going to be gone, right? This experience isn't going to last. The, The thrill isn't going to be there, but that's okay because at the end of it, I'm still a, I am still belong to God. I'm still serving Him. And if I get to do it again, great. If I don't, great. But if we're trying to find meaning in the experience, we're going to be let down time after time after time. So let us look to the Lord for our fulfillment in this life. Father, thank You for the time we've had in Your Word tonight. Thank You for... The wise words of Solomon, thank you for such a wonderful place you have created. Yes, Lord, we live in a world plagued and dogged by sin. And in our lives, we feel that. But thank you that even here, there are things that we can enjoy. There are experiences that we can revel in. There are pleasures that we can find here. Lord, help us to realize that we can only find and enjoy these things completely with a proper relationship with you. Help us to see that you need to be on the throne of our lives. And Lord, help us as we go through this life, enjoying the things you have given us, the gifts that you have been so gracious to put into our lives. Help us to see at the end of the day, that's not what matters the most. Our relationship with you is what matters. And let us give you praise and thanks for the things we enjoy along the way. The relationships, the experiences, the possessions, the work, whatever it may be. Help us to give you the priority that you deserve in our lives. And may we then live a fulfilled and meaningful life. Be with us now as we close our service tonight and prepare to head out into the week ahead. Help us to keep these things in our hearts and minds that we may be better servants of you each and every day. And then we pray, amen.